Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Amy Lappin, a clinical psychologist in private practice in Long Beach, California. She specializes in the treatment of PTSD and has expertise in using prolonged exposure treatment for trauma, which she will be talking about today. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. This is a really great subject. I always like talking about trauma and PTSD. Many psychologists experience this quite a bit in their practices, as do I. And so any opportunity I have to talk with fellow clinicians about PTSD and trauma and learn some more tricks of the trade, it's very helpful for me, as well as people who listen to this show, I'm sure would really benefit from hearing more about this topic. So I'm super excited to talk with you about your knowledge and practice in this area. Thank you, Aaron. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about all of this. So to begin with, I always like to learn a little bit about my guests before we get into the meat of the subject. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal background and your road to becoming a clinical psychologist. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's interesting because I think I was always a sort of a natural, quote unquote, natural therapist, uh, looking back at my experiences back to even middle school and high school, I was always the friend that people would come to and talk to and say, what do you think I should do about this? And I think I've always been perceived as a empathic, non-judgmental person. And so I think naturally this was a good fit for me. When I was trying to decide what to go to grad school for, I had some other areas of interest as well. But basically what it came down to, there were a few things. One thing um, was just lifestyle. I knew that because I'd been interested in law school as well. And I thought, well, I want to be a mom. I want to have a balanced life. At the time I was dancing and, and teaching salsa and really involved in samba dancing and traveling. And I wanted to have more of a balance to my life, which I thought being a psychologist would provide more than say a lawyer whose part-time job is 40 hours a week, let's say. But the other piece, or I should say pieces were, I considered what aspect of myself do I want to develop and who do I want to be around as my colleagues? And I really liked the idea that becoming a psychologist myself would help me develop and accentuate parts of myself that I thought were positive, give me a way to sort of understand the world and people and human behavior. And I also gravitated towards other people that were similar to me in the sense of being interested in humans, being non-judgmental, being empathic. And I figured that if I pursued this path, I would be surrounded by people like that as well. You have specialized in trauma and PTSD, it sounds like. So where did your interest in that come from? That is kind of funny. I, I actually sort of fell into that. The way that I developed the specialty in particular is I've born and raised in California, but I ended up living in Mississippi 
for several years. And the reason I went there is because my husband was working for a program called AmeriCorps. And I describe AmeriCorps like the Peace Corps, but in the US. So he was helping with disaster relief, Katrina cleanup and all that stuff. And I ended up at the University of Mississippi with a pretty well-known researcher, the head of the psychology department who was doing PTSD research. And he was looking at the impact of treating PTSD on maintenance of sobriety. And the hypothesis was that if we treat PTSD, then clients are much more able to get and stay sober. I mean, it's probably intuitive, but if I'm having PTSD symptoms, am I having trauma symptoms? I want to escape those somehow. And alcohol is one of those ways I might choose to escape them. Yeah. Did you have any involvement with the VA in Mississippi there? There's a really famous PTSD program there. I know there was a lot of overlap and they're Mm -hmm. right across the parking lot from us. I interviewed with them and then I ended up going with the University of Mississippi. But yes, I do know the VA facility and some of the clinicians. So that makes a lot of sense how you got into this field and your interest in it. So let's delve a little bit into trauma and PTSD. So PTSD now is a sort of a buzzword. People often talk about, oh, I have PTSD from X, Y, and Z. But clinically speaking, let's talk about what exactly is PTSD. Let's talk about maybe some of the symptoms of it and how we would differentiate PTSD from somebody who has experienced a bad experience and maybe doesn't reach clinical levels of PTSD. Those are all very good points and interesting questions. So you're right. People will say, I have PTSD. I'll I'll hear students. I have PTSD. My last semester was so hard. I think that's true of psychology words in general. So we often say I'm bipolar. He or she's bipolar. I'm schizophrenic. He or she's schizophrenic. People throw those words around. When we think about PTSD and trauma in the clinical world, it's a very specific definition. I've heard some clinicians describe big T and little t, big T meaning a specific event that probably meets criteria for a traumatic event, and little t meaning things that happen over time, uh, let's say uh, what we might call an invalidating environment or some verbal abuse or bullying or something like that that may, may not reach big T level. So I wanna be careful to say a lot of things can be traumatic even if we don't classify them as a big T traumatic event. So when we think about a trauma big T uh, that would, would meet the criteria for PTSD, we're looking at exposure. There's a very specific definition, exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. And you don't have to be the direct victim, or we would say survivor after the trauma has passed, you don't have to be the victim or the survivor of one of these events. It could Mm -hmm. be a direct experience, but it could also be witnessing it. So if I witness a car crash with somebody passing away, that would qualify as a big T event. I could learn about somebody else. It would be somebody close to me, a family member or a close friend 
who dies suddenly in a violent or accidental way. We also include repeated exposures to details of traumatic events like like a police officer, someone in law enforcement, a first responder. We would also potentially consider those big T events. So big T events, a first responder who is repeatedly seeing horrifying car accidents or right witnessing violent things that happen that could qualify as a big t trauma right so the student who's had a bad semester let's say she broke up with a horrible boyfriend who was just you know an ass but not necessarily <laughs> physically abusive mm-hmm. and so that was difficult and then grades suffered and there were sort of problems that might be like a little t trauma. Is that right? Is that correct? Because exactly. there's not an actual threat to um, physical or to um, sexual violence if that didn't happen. Right. So that's a trauma. Tell us a little bit about the symptoms of PTSD. Okay. Yeah. So, so we look for and assess for symptoms in various categories. And one of the categories is what we call intrusion or re-experiencing. And that is what you see in the movies sometimes as a flashback. I mean, re-experiencing can go from mild, I'm dissociating a little bit. Oh, I'm, I'm back. I don't know what I was just thinking about all the way to a more extreme, which is usually what's represented in the movies, feeling like I'm back at the trauma and it's happening right then. I mean, that's the, the those are the kind of scenes where you see somebody ducking under the table, they're triggered by a loud noise or something like that. So that would be more like a flashback, but re-experiencing can occur with memories just popping into my mind, dreams that I'm having or that one's having. They can be triggered by something internal, meaning a thought or a feeling or even a physiological response, a response in my body could trigger a memory or it could be something external. It could be, I'm walking by the place where the trauma occurred and I, and I have a re-experiencing because there's an external cue that reminds me. And another big piece, which we'll get into that prolonged exposure addresses is avoidance. Hmm. And, and this is why PTSD used to be categorized under an anxiety disorder. It's not anymore in the DSM, the diagnostic and statistical manual, but I think avoidance was one of the reasons that it used to be categorized under anxiety because avoidance is very, very common with anxiety as well. It's our primary response to anything we feel anxious about. I know it's short-term solution. If I'm nervous about something, I just don't think about it. Don't engage with it. Hey, I feel better temporarily. Right. So avoidance is huge. So And with PTSD, that's avoiding memories, that's avoiding thoughts, that's avoiding feelings, anything that reminds me of the trauma. And again, this can be internal or external. So as an example, internally, you might have somebody who used to like exercising. When you exercise, you sweat, your heart races, all of that, that maybe becomes paired associated with a trauma. When I'm going through a traumatic event, my heart's racing, I'm sweating. So now I want to avoid exercise because the physiological symptoms that occur have been paired with trauma for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the avoidance 
just to be clear, also isn't necessarily a conscious avoidance, right? A person right. might just be sort of checking out, avoiding emotionally, numbing out. I guess the emotional numbness is still considered part of the avoidance in, in DSM-5. I, yeah. Yes. So, uh, so those kinds of things aren't somebody something that somebody's consciously saying, I don't like the way this feels. I'm going to numb out. It that just sort of happens as part of the PTSD process. Yeah. Certainly, certainly, people are not always conscious of that. And sometimes, when we go through and prepare to do the prolonged exposure treatment, they will become conscious of that. Oh wow! I just realized I never wear that shirt anymore. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite that I was wearing when I got attacked. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! I realized that you know, the sound of breaking glass is something that I really can't tolerate, right? So sometimes people realize it as we're going through the process and trying to identify what those cues are. Yeah. Any other specific symptoms or clusters of PTSD that you think would be helpful to mention? Yeah. So the two other main ones are changes in cognitions, which most people know is just a fancy word for thoughts or thinking Mm -hmm. and changes in mood and that means that those things are either starting or worsening after the trauma. So sometimes somebody will have some depressed depression or underlying anxiety. And so the symptoms that they might have cognitively or emotionally don't start with the trauma, but they may be exacerbated by the trauma. What else do I mean by changes in thoughts, trouble remembering aspects of the trauma? Okay, so there's patches in my memory, there's holes in my memory, Mm -hmm. and we say that it's not directly related to injury or substance use. Mm -hmm. So even let's say something that people are familiar with in a sexual assault is the use of some substance that might result in some memory loss. We're talking about even outside of that. There's no Mm -hmm. substance involved. There's no brain injury or anything like that, but I just can't remember because I dissociated probably during part of the trauma. Yeah, that's an interesting one because sometimes you hear people saying the polar opposites, right? Either there's patches of the memories that are Mm -hmm. missing and I can't remember them, but you'll hear some people sometimes saying that they remember everything in vivid detail. So it can kind of go either way on that. Yeah, exactly. And, or it often goes together. I should say, I can't remember this part of it, but this Mm -hmm. part is repetitively playing in my head, like a broken record. And both are disturbing. People that have a lot of re-experiencing symptoms might say, I wish I could forget, but that's disturbing to people too. Cause then mm-hmm. they don't know, you know, why am I forgetting? This feels off. This feels weird. Is there an important part of this that I'm not remembering what happened to me in the moments that I don't remember? So both are troubling to people. So Amy, could you say a little bit about the time frame for PTSD, because I know sometimes when people experience a traumatic event, they have a loved one who dies or, or something happens, it's not uncommon for people to have some of these clinical symptoms for a period of time. And sometimes they sort of fade or go away. So at what point do we start to become concerned that the response a person is having to a traumatic event is actually PTSD? Yeah, so that's a good point. Sometimes we can can say that somebody has acute stress disorder, mm-hmm. which happens before the one month period. But typically we would say if symptoms are going on for more than one month after the end of the trauma, then 
we would say potentially that somebody meets um, the criteria for PTSD. I mean, like anything in the DSM, we have to say that there's some distress or impairment that comes along. So let's say somebody comes in and they say, I'm having these symptoms, but it's not really bothering me. I'm still going to work. I'm still happy in my relationship. Uh, I still do the things I used to do and pretty much go about my life. Then we wouldn't necessarily treat the trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? So it has to go on for more than a month, typically to do prolonged exposure. And it has to the, the symptoms have to be presenting issues in that person's life, distress right. or impairment in, in important areas of their life. Right. So it's, it's not uncommon for somebody to have a nightmare occasionally once or twice a year and kind of wake up and shake it off and say, oh, gosh, haven't had a nightmare about that in a while, but then go about their day and not be a big deal for them. In addition to not remembering, there's other important changes that happen, and this is really crucial. People start to have changes in their beliefs about their self, about other people, and about the world. And the reason this is so impactful is because we're social beings. So if I start thinking, I can't trust anybody, people are inherently bad, that impacts so many areas of my life. In terms of how I'm changing my belief about myself, I might be blaming myself, I'm bad, I did something wrong. Um, That comes up very commonly and is something we have to address. The other changes might present as negative emotions like you'd imagine, fear, anger, shame, guilt, feeling detached from other people, being less interested in things. And just overall, not feeling positive emotions like love, satisfaction, happiness. So that all goes under cognitions or thoughts. And then the the last one that I wanted to touch on was just the arousal or we call it a reactivity. And again, this is something that starts or worsens after the trauma that can present as irritability or anger. It can prevent, uh, present as destructiveness or reckless behavior, and it can also present as hypervigilance. And so that's where you see the people, I have to look out of my door before leaving the house. I only like to sit with my back you know, to the wall where I can see everything. And the arousal piece is the jumpiness. So somebody might say, yeah, I was always kind of jumpy. I went to the eye doctor and they would put that puff thing in my eye and I really didn't like it. But after the trauma, the slightest sound, I'm I'm in the car with somebody and they go over a bump and I audibly gasp or something like that. So that arousal piece also keeps people feeling anxious and on edge when they have PTSD. Yeah, right. And the classic for that is the combat veteran, right, who comes back and has been in combat and, you know, here's a car backfiring or a helicopter overhead or you know, 4th of July or New Year's Eve is exactly, you know, nightmares for them. So, right. Great. Yeah. So the physiological arousal piece is the last piece. So let's talk a bit about prolonged exposure treatment. Tell us what is that and how does that work? So prolonged exposure is, is really fascinating. It basically takes the concept of avoidance and does the opposite of that. So we call it sometimes opposite action to emotion, 
right? And we use that in a lot of areas of psychology. So I'm feeling depressed. My instinct, my emotion is telling me stay in bed, sleep more, isolate. But the treatment is behavioral activation, which Mm -hmm. is actually go out, engage in things that are likely to bring about pleasure, mastery, or be in alignment with your values. So that's what prolonged exposure does. There's two aspects and we call them in vivo or real life exposure and imaginal exposure or reliving exposure. And I'll describe what those are, but just to kind of walk you through how we do the treatment, we start with giving psychoeducation. So just education about what is PTSD, why does it develop, normalizing the symptoms so people know I'm not crazy, this makes sense, somebody understands me. We talk about some of the people, um, Edna Foa and Barbara Rothbaum, who created prolonged exposure. And part of this is to establish rapport. So we get clients to be more comfortable because this is a hard treatment. The other piece is buy-in also because this is a hard treatment. So whenever I tell somebody, this is what we're going to be doing, we're going to be reliving the trauma. We're going to be exposing you to aspects of the trauma. If they actually have PTSD, they go, oh my God, no way. I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's really part of the diagnosis. If I ever have anybody go, yeah, sure. No problem. I'm like, okay, I don't think you need this treatment. Right. Cause you're asking somebody to imagine confronting the very thing that they're most afraid of doing in real life. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So we start with that. We also start with some psychoeducation around breathing, the diaphragmatic breathing, which we know um, involves the vagus nerve and triggers a relaxation response. But we're also sure to tell people, we don't want you doing that during the exposure. You can utilize that after the exposure, but like any exposure, we actually want your anxiety and your physiological symptoms to come up for you to see that you can tolerate for them to come naturally down over time. Because otherwise, even the breathing can be utilized as a safety behavior or as an avoidance strategy. We talk about all of that. And then we start to talk a little bit about the cues that we're gonna use for exposure for the real life or the in vivo. So again, I kind of hinted at this earlier. I try to invoke all of the senses. What were you seeing when this happened? What were you smelling when this happened? What were you hearing? What were you tasting? What were you touching or what were you feeling on your body? We try to pull out all of those cues that are associated with, um, with the trauma. And after that, we build what we call a hierarchy or a fear and avoidance hierarchy where we start with something We're going to do an exposure related to something that is anxiety provoking, but not a hundred on a scale Mm -hmm. of, of zero to a hundred. So a zero might be, I'm in Hawaii, probably, right? A lot of people (laughs) would use that example. I'm in Hawaii. I'm getting a massage on the beach and a hundred is the trauma, the most anxious and distressed I've ever felt. And we start with maybe a 20 or 25, and we work our way up. Mm -hmm. And 
when I'm giving the education around this, one example I'll often use is of, we'll use a dog, the idea of a dog and a child who is, let's say a child goes to visit someone's home and they're not comfortable around dogs and a golden retriever comes bounding out and the parent or parents know, oh, this is a friendly dog. These are you know, known for their lovability and their gentleness. The kid doesn't know that. So the kid says, whoa, this is like some hairy beast. They try to mm-hmm. hide behind the mom's leg or climb up onto the dad's body. Mm-hmm. What happens then if the parents say, oh, you're scared, I'm, let's leave, is that maintains the fear and the anxiety. And the child doesn't get to learn, okay, I'm scared, but I'm not actually in danger. There's an avoidance response that the child is saying, big, hairy beast. What you do is you flee. Mom and dad are shuttling me out of here, which is reinforcing the idea that it's dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then they don't learn something else and they don't get to process, okay, again, I'm scared, but this is, I'm actually safe. And so we talk, we talk about that, how if the child were given the chance to stay and first, you know, an exposure in that sense would look like, okay, I'm going to put you down a little bit closer. The dog's on a leash first. We get, let the dog go a little closer. Then you pat the dog. Then we let the dog off the leash, right? We do that for the prolonged exposure. So again, let's take the example of somebody who's, and I use this example in my treatment, somebody's attacked by a man driving a red truck and wearing a plaid shirt. We might say, let's start with the color red. Then we'll move to a sketch of a red truck. Then we'll move to an actual real picture of a red truck. Then we'll move to a video of a red truck. Once the person practices spending time around those things. And that's literally what it sounds like. We would have clients for 45 minutes for a whole week, as many times as they can till we meet again, start with looking at a picture of a red truck. And once they have lower anxiety, then we go to the next one and the next one. And that's the in vivo part. Right. So the in vivo part, you're basically having a hierarchy of stimuli that approximate something to do with the trauma that's being avoided and have them practice being in those situations, progressively trying to do more and more difficult things and learning to adapt to those and lower their anxiety in those situations. Right. And what do you do? I I imagine a lot of the things that a lot of the things on the hierarchy involve things you can't do in the office So how do you approach those kinds of things? Like, let's just say Mm -hmm. the person was afraid of a a yellow school bus. The yellow school bus somehow or another was involved with their trauma and you don't have a yellow school bus (laughs) near where you are. How, How do you work that into the therapeutic protocol? Well, they don't only do it in my office with me. They do it as homework. So we might have to get creative though. We might have to talk about where can you find a yellow school bus? Oh, you know, there's a school down the street. You could go and park there, you know, safely with your car off, right? Park there and look at the bus for 45 minutes on Monday, Thursday, Friday, and I'll see you again the following Monday, let's say. Got it. 
So they have homework assignments and they report back and hopefully they've been able to try them. And if it doesn't work for some reason, you talk about kind of what went wrong with that. Yes. And they're recording their anxiety for me. They're recording how long they've done it for. They're recording how anxious they feel prior to the exposure and their peak of anxiety. And over time, you know, usually across the individual exposure. So in that example, somebody goes and parks in that 45 minute time, it's possible that their anxiety comes down a little bit there, right? Because you're, they're there for 45 minutes over time. When they go back again, it's likely the peak is a little lower. And then the next time the peak is a little bit lower and the peak is a little bit lower, but they have to stay in that exposure for a period of time too, and let the anxiety come down during that exposure. So it's not like they can just drive and look at the school bus and get out of there quickly, because then that would be kind of like the dog example of running off. Yeah. I, and I think that's a really important point because I've seen situations where I've had patients that have gone to approach something in their hierarchy and it's almost like they go there, they white knuckle it, Right. You know, they're really, really anxious. And then they're like, okay, I can't take it anymore. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. And they'll come back and report that they did the exercise, but they actually left more anxious than when they started. They reinforced it. So, so I think what you're saying is in order for it to really work, the person needs to be in that exposure environment long enough to come over Mm -hmm. that peak and start coming down the other side. So it's less anxious than when they started. Exactly. And we talk about another common example I use is a scary movie mm-hmm. that a PTSD reaction is like watching a scary movie. The first time I watch the scary movie, I'm at the edge of my seat. I'm gripping the sides. I'm having a heart, all the physiology. I'm right. Like there's various ways that this can translate, but the most important one, I guess the punchline is that if I were to watch a scary movie over and over and over, my response to it would change. So the first time I'm on the edge of my seat, I'm having, you know, my heart racing, I'm getting jumpy and I'm looking outside and thinking about, you know, what's happening in the dark outside my window. If I watch the movie again and again and again and again, I basically acclimate to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, and I learn that even though something feels scary, I'm not actually in danger, right? I'm not actually any more in danger than I was 30 minutes before I started the movie, even though it feels like it. Yeah. Not only that, when it comes to scary movies, it's always like the, the first kill, right? That's the <laughs> scariest one. Well, it's like an exposure, first... right? <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I, I think the, you know, Hollywood must realize this because the, you know, the body count goes up exponentially <laughs> in the second half of the mo- movie, because people are already desensitized to the first one. So they have to up the ante, I guess. Right, they're moving us up the hierarchy. <laughs> moving up the hierarchy of, right, of violence in the, in the scary movie. Well, you talked about in vivo and the mm-hmm. hierarchy, and that makes a lot of sense. You, can you say a little bit about the imaginal exposure? Is that part of the whole protocol or is that a, kind of a separate thing? No, that's part of it. That's 50% of it, uh, maybe even more. And the reason I say maybe even more is because there aren't as many barriers. Like you're right. What you were talking about, what if you can't find a yellow school bus or things like that? So 
What the imaginal does is it does that movie again, over and over and over again. And we want to make sure that we know when we say you're not in, you feel fear, but you're not in any danger. What we mean is the memories of the trauma are not dangerous. The re-experiencing is not dangerous. The trauma itself obviously was very dangerous. It was a major threat to yours or somebody else's life or their physical integrity. So we want to make sure they, that, that our clients know that was very dangerous and we're not going to have you do any in vivo exposure that is actually dangerous. If you weren't intact in a dark alley, I'm not going to tell you go back to a dark alley that's actually dangerous. The point is to learn I can be around these cues and not be in danger. Right. So you're not sending them to Skid Row in downtown right. LA. Right. So I, I really understand the hierarchy, having people go to neutral stimuli, mm -hmm. a school bus, a place that's really not dangerous. In the imaginal yeah. aspect of it, are people actually reliving through their memories what actually happened yes. to them? Yes. They're going through the actual trauma again? Yes. And they're telling it aloud. So they're telling it aloud. Okay. Yes, they're telling it aloud. And I'm actually having them record it. So how mm -hmm. this works is they tell it aloud in the present tense. And that helps with the, I'm imagining it, I'm re-experiencing it. So we have clients, you close your eyes and they start, we say, start at the point that you consider to be the beginning. And we prompt them, especially when they're first learning to do this. And so I'll tell them, this is, this is how I would do logging on to this interview. Okay, I'm sitting down in front of my computer. I'm hearing my dog walk past the door and I'm hoping that she doesn't start barking. I'm seeing the light filter in through the sheer curtains that I have in my bedroom and I'm, I'm smelling my fresh coffee, noticing that my throat's a little bit dry and my stomach is a bit tense, right? So I'm telling it as it's happening right now. And we try to stay away from interpretations mm -hmm. because that's not what was happening at the time. So I mm -hmm. wouldn't say, I think I'm nervous because I'm about to get on an interview with Aaron, right? Um, if I wasn't thinking that at the time. So we direct them to that. We direct them to the present tense. I might ask, what are you feeling in your body right now? What are you smelling? What are you seeing? And they tell the whole trauma with all the details. And depending on how much time it's been, hopefully about 45 minutes, roughly, or 40 minutes, if we can, we might do it multiple times. And again, it depends on how long the trauma is. I might direct them if they start at the beginning and it was three days before the trauma, I might say, start at the point, like for a motor vehicle accident, start at the point where you're getting on the freeway, right? And then I want you to keep your eyes closed and start again at the point where you're getting on the freeway. And they're recording it so they can listen to it every day, hopefully, or as many times as possible between sessions. And we have them tape over 
the recording and make a new one each time. And there's several reasons for that. I mean, confidentiality is part of that. But the other reason is because the story changes over time. And it's supposed to. My relationship to the story changes, the details that I remember change. It's not important that it becomes more or less factual or anything like that. It's just that just naturally happens. And we let people know that's also normal. So it's sort of like, I mean, this is not a perfect analogy, but it's sort of like watching that horror movie again and again and again and again to the point where the horror movie is just not interesting. It, yeah. it's, it's something you've seen so many times. It's hard to ha- get too activated by watching it. And I think this is what you're talking about with repeating the story. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we'll tell that to clients in the beginning, you'll want to avoid because it's so stressful. It's so anxiety provoking in the end, you'll want to avoid because it's boring. Yes. Right. <laughs> you don't right. want to do I like, do I have to, I don't care. Yeah. I'm fine now. Really? I still have to do this. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the techniques that you're talking about with the prolonged exposure are very similar to the ones that, you know, that I typically use just for exposure of phobias, for example. So I'll have patients who have elevator phobias or escalator phobias or something like that. And, you know, we'll go into the building or go into the mall and ride the elevators and escalators Mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, they don't want to see another elevator for the rest (laughs) of their life because it's just so boring time with you. Yeah. (laughs) Too much time with you elevator. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. So the in vivo and the imaginal are both really important parts of Mm -hmm. the prolonged therapy experience. And so tell me a little bit what are the outcomes that you typically see with this? I'm, I mean, I know it's, it varies from patient to patient, but what can people expect if they go through this kind of process? Well, I never want to say a hundred percent cure rate, but I, I mean, I'm pretty confident that this works. The main time that doesn't work is when people just don't want to do it because it's too stressful. Yeah. If they stick with it, I will be honest, I've never had a client finish the whole treatment and not have significant, significant relief. Well, that's a pretty good endorsement. I think it really makes sense just from a theoretical standpoint that things that are scary when you expose yourself to them and nothing bad happens, they no longer become scary anymore. So it's just a matter of really just sticking with that to get to the point And you're right. It's very difficult because who really wants to put them in a situation that feels really uncomfortable. So it's hard work. Exactly. It goes against the strongest drive, which is to avoid something that makes us feel bad. Right. And evolutionarily, right. I'm sure you use this when you talk about phobias, it makes sense to avoid something that when there's a real threat, We all talk about the saber-toothed tiger. It was important for our ancestors to have fear and to want to avoid saber-toothed tiger. Because if I was one of the people that said, I'm not scared of that and went out munch, (laughs) I'm gone. Exactly. Right. So fear is important. The problem with PTSD is I'm having a fear response even when I'm not in danger. And it's chronic. So now, you know, I can't leave the cave and go you know, hunter gather, do whatever I need to do, even when the saber toothed tiger is gone. So that's an interesting point, Amy. What would you say to somebody if they said, well, 
this thing that happened to me, obviously it can and does happen because it happened to me. Right. So I don't want to give up my hypervigilance and being on guard because I don't want to allow this thing to ever happen to me again. Well, I mean, that's almost another conversation where we're, t- we're getting into how do you live with risk and uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what we all do. I mean, we all have to live. I can't say with a hundred percent certainty, I'm not going to die today. You're not going to die today. I'm a plane's not going to crash into my house. Right. I mean, who knows? Right. So part of it is tolerating some anxiety, but I would also say that those things are interfering in your life and negatively affecting your quality of life. And they're not actually keeping your, you're not actually keeping you more safe, right? Avoiding a school bus isn't keeping you more safe. Avoiding exercising because I don't like my heart racing is not keeping me safe. Having nightmares is not really keeping me safe. Yeah. Well, that's very true. Technically, if you had anxiety about taking a plane flight, then not flying on a plane keeps you safe from crashing on a plane. Right. And <laughs> right. I see this in Hawaii a lot Amy, right. because people who have flying phobias can't go anywhere right? Yeah. <laughs> on an island. You can't just drive places. So that then becomes that risk tolerance conversation, right? Where yeah. you have to say like, is it really worth it for me to completely avoid these things that are such low probability that even if something like this may have happened to me, right. um, the likelihood of, of, of it happening again, just randomly are so low that it's not worth it for me to give up this quality of life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. For, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that comes into play with phobias too, right? Like if I have a phobia of scorpions and I live in New York city, that might be I mean, maybe I don't need to have that treated. If Mm -hmm. I have a fear of cockroaches, sorry to slam New York, maybe. (laughs) But if I have a fear of cockroaches, then that might be a problem, right? Oh, we have a lot of cockroach (laughs) phobia here in Hawaii. Believe me, there are a lot of cockroaches. Well, yeah. And so I wanted to share, because I I promised at the beginning or, or mentioned the beginning that I actually have my own experience with what I think could have developed into PTSD. And I won't go into all the details, but it was regarding the end of my pregnancy with twins and I had preeclampsia and I had something called hyponatremia and even the high risk doctor at UCLA didn't know what to do with me. I was put in the ICU for more than a week. And anyway, that's the background. And I think because I had so much experience with treating PTSD, when I started to see I was developing this hypervigilance, nightmares, I tried to do exposure on myself. I talked about the experience a lot. I journaled about the experience. I went back to the hospital and talked with the NICU nurses and the hospital soap was very evocative for me for a long time. And so I do want to let people know that if something traumatic happens, that is potentially one way to prevent going from an acute stress disorder into PTSD, if they can do some of these things. Addressing it head on rather than avoiding. Yeah. 
Amy, this has been a really interesting conversation about PTSD and prolonged trauma therapy. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts or things you want to add. I guess I just want to say that there is hope for you if you have PTSD. I know that it's one of those things that feels like it's never going to go away because people will say, I've had it for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It feels like it just happened yesterday. And that doesn't mean it can't be treated. Another thing I think that's probably really important there, Amy, and you probably would agree with this, that if one really does have PTSD, finding a therapist or a clinician that has some expertise in treating it with some of these methods and modalities is really important. A hundred percent, because people will say, well, I've already been to therapy and it didn't help, or, you know, I still have PTSD and often well-meaning therapists don't ask in detail about the trauma because they don't want to feel like they're being pushy or they don't really know what to do with it. And so there's a lot of things, not only in therapy, but outside of therapy. Oh, my friends are sick of hearing about this or, oh, that's scary. I don't want to ask this person about it. There's a lot of things that happen to reinforce. So even if somebody says, I've been in therapy before and I still have PTSD, I will still go back to, yes, try somebody that has expertise. It doesn't have to be prolonged exposure. I know there are other uh, evidence-based treatments. This is just happens to be the one that I'm the most familiar with and confident in, but find somebody that knows, that has expertise and knows how to treat this. And the chances of you recovering are much, much higher. Well, Amy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.